0: John chapter 1, we're going to begin looking at verse 19. I think it's on page 1049 in the Pew Bible, so please open it up. If you could summarize the gospel of John, his witness of Christ, his good news concerning the Savior, if you could summarize it in one sentence, it would be one verse. That verse would be in John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written, all the things that John had included, and there were a lot of things that he said he didn't include, but of all the things that he did include... This he said, I write, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A life, what kind of life are we talking about? Well, we're talking about eternal life. And there's another uh, portion in John, in chapter 17 of John, where Jesus says, and this is eternal life. That's, when when Jesus says that, that's when we kind of, you know, we want to naturally lean in, Right? We want to say, what is he about to say next? This is eternal life. Is it that we would behave in such a way that we would that we would be uh, that we would belong in such a way to this that we would we believe certain things and thus we would have eternal life? No, he says, this is eternal life that they may know God, that you might know God. That would be the greatest thing, eternal life, not life. You know, part two, continuing on, eternal life, but eternal, abundant life now is to know God. And John wants us to know God. Jesus wants us to know the living God in Him, whom God sent. Now, John, the way that He unfolds it in the Gospel of John is he employs different testimonies. He doesn't just say, Hey, listen, this is my account, this is, you know, this is my perspective, this is my eyewitness account. He collects other witnesses, other testimonies to help us get a better understanding of who Jesus is and what is the gospel message. And so the first witness that he begins with is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, uh, this, this great leader who is esteemed, uh, who, who is, there's great, a, a great deal of attention surrounding him and there's a buzz concerning him and that's where we focus this morning concerning John. Let's look at God's word beginning in verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, that is, John the Baptist, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, well, then, who are you? Give us an answer so that we could take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to to untie. I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Look, the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. This this is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel." Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Will you join me in just a moment just to pray? Lord, our God, we confess that uh, this morning we have sin, so forgive us. Forgive us because sin has a way of confusing us, distracting us, even deceiving us. When we don't perceive ourselves, we don't perceive the world or our identity, we don't even perceive you, our maker, correctly. So I pray that right now you might have mercy, that you would even come by the power of your spirit to accompany and illuminate your word so that we might be challenged we might even be changed for Christ's sake we ask amen uh, do, do any of you remember uh, disposable cameras do, do, do you remember these things <laughs> this is something that you know this was kind of a phenomenon i think it was like the 90s pretty much characterized disposable cameras right you could pick them up at the store this is also the days when you would actually have your film developed at you know the local whatever drugstore or the mall, and so there were these these cameras, disposable ones. They even came out with in the late 90s when I was in college. They came out with a one that was a panoramic disposable camera. We took some of these on a ski trip. Some buddies of mine. We went out west to ski, and uh, we came back and had these neat pictures. And I remember several months later in the spring, I was over at one of uh, these guys' house. There was a party. There was a meal going on. And I noticed on his wall he had some pictures that were recently framed that were put up, and uh, he had one of these pictures from the trip. It was this beautiful, you know, this beautiful uh, landscape overlooking the mountains uh, in Vale or Keystone or wherever. And I, I looked a little bit closer, and he had cropped off part of it so it could fit in part of the frame. And I, I'm looking carefully at the picture, and I notice there's a little red coat, and, and the guy's cut off. That's my red coat. What on earth? Lance has completely cut me, cut me out of the picture. I, I was so disgruntled. I, I was you know, kind of you know, upset. I'm like, well, fine then. You know, if, if Lance doesn't need me in his picture or need me in his life, then I don't need him as a friend either. And I was completely missing in the point. Of course, Lance and I weren't even that close, and that wasn't even the focus of the picture. The, the focus of the picture was the whole you know, beautiful landscape, the mountains and the snow. But you know how it is Sometimes wasn't that big of a deal, but if you were to, if you were to look out and envision, if, if you will, just the landscape and the panorama of your life, of the narrative of your life, where's the focus? And, and, and even more pointedly, where, where is God in there? Where is Christ? Is, is he in focus? Is he in the picture? Is he on the fringe? Is, is there? Are there times, are there moments where he is cropped out and i don't mean in photoshop kind of way where is he where is jesus our outline this morning is just two headings the first is john's identity and purpose and then the second is jesus's identity and purpose so let's look here at verses 19 through 28 where i think we see part of john's identity and purpose what's going on is like a a congressional interrogation here is men are sent part of the Jerusalem uh, leadership. They've come to, uh, to set up an interrogation. It's almost like if you, you know, could imagine, you know, when a president nominates someone and they have to be uh, before a, a hearing committee or maybe they appoint, say, an attorney general. And then, of course, all of the members of Congress who are on the opposing party will immediately attack and probe and investigate and try to find fault against this nominee and and that's kind of what's going on here they're coming and they're on a a fact well really a fault-finding mission as they are pointing and they've been sent so let's look here at verse 19 now the, the Jerusalem the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was and then they, they press down, are you Elijah, are you, are, you, are you a prophet, I mean, are you even Messiah? And there, there are hopes and there are histories that surround why they might ask those questions. But John the Baptist makes clear. He makes very clear in verse 20, I am not the Christ. So, so then What? But John's identity and his purpose starts to come forward in verse 23. What does he say there? I am a voice. That's all I am. I'm just a humble voice. That's my role. And he quotes there uh, from Isaiah 40. I'm just, I'm just, all I'm doing is just clearing the way. I, I'm just prepping the road so that people can make a clear path to Messiah and have an understanding there. And, and his purpose was to call people to repentance and that's what his baptism was about. It's different than the baptism into Christ's church. It's, it's a baptism of repentance, of cleansing. It's a symbolic thing to, to turn. And, and he wants to prepare the way and point them to Christ. And he makes very clear in verse 27, look, let me be very clear to your answer to this you know, interrogation. Let me be really clear. Verse 27, I am not worthy. That alone is something, Right? But then he goes a step further because he says, not only am I just generally, I'm not worthy, but I'm not even worthy whenever he comes, okay? I, I can't even stoop down and untie his sandals. That would be a place in a society where people mostly wore sandals, collected a lot of dirt and dust. It was a filthy place, their feet. And it was something that only a slave or servant could even do. It was prohibited by law. I mean, here he's saying, look, I'm not even on, I'm not even on that spectrum. I'm off of that. I'm below that as far as the true Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, is concerned. I'm lower than that. Well, here you have this popular leader. He's a man of of integrity, of great character and courage. He's esteemed by tons of people. There are flocks of people surrounding him, but here he's saying, I'm unworthy. You know, what's wrong with him? I mean, is he just a self-deprecating person? Is he just kind of a pathetic figure? Maybe he's just shy and a bit, you know, self-conscious, but But he's not. He's not shy. John goes on to be rather bold. In fact, he he carries on a a very prophetic witness concerning who Christ is and what God has called people to. In fact, if you go uh, elsewhere and you read in Mark chapter 6, we read that John the Baptist went to King Herod and said, hey, listen, um, I'm going to go ahead and meddle in your business. That woman you're sleeping with, it's not your wife. It's your brother's wife. And that's wrong. Well, that, that, that afforded him some comforts and some luxuries in, uh, in prison, and, and eventually he was, well, he was beheaded. That, that John, John the Baptist, even before he is born, he is praised by Zechariah in the temple. And then, if you look at the other end, the bookends of his life, he is praised in Matthew 11. He is praised as one, Jesus says, the greatest man who's ever lived. So why would John say, I am unworthy? Why would he conclude this? How can he say it? Is he just a damaged, helpless soul with a low self-esteem? No, he is a humble voice. He knows that the focus and the purpose of his life is not to draw attention to himself. I, I think it's safe to say that we would all agree that humility is a virtuous thing right? That's something that we, it's noble. It's, it's a good thing. And it's not a good thing to brag. It's not, it's not wise to be arrogant. But maybe John's going just a bit too far. I mean, are you really unworthy? That's, that's too far. But where is, and when is humility genuine? Where is your identity? Where, if you were to locate your identity... I know most of us don't go around saying I'm unworthy, but, but where are you worthy? Where do you associate your worth, your identity, your purpose? Is it in your family? Is it in your career or your credentials? What you, what you own? What are your gifts or your talents? Well, if it is or if you're drawn to do that, then you, may, you very well may have too high a view of yourself But then again, on the other hand, if you tend to locate part of your identity in your hurts and your wants and maybe a victim status or things that have gone wrong or disappointments and circumstances in your life, then you very well may have too low a view of yourself. And that is not Christian humility. In fact, Christian humility is not having too high a view of yourself or too low a view of yourself, but having a God-centered view of yourself. I hope that makes sense. Let let me me describe it a little bit further. Tim Keller uh, captures it rather well. Pastor Tim Keller, in quoting C.S. Lewis, he says, Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. C.S. Lewis, Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That's, that's difficult. No longer noticing ourselves. How am I doing? How am I being, treating, being treated? How do I appear? What do I look like? How do people perceive me? Instead, we should long for a blessed self-forgetfulness. You see, John the Baptist, he's not just slamming and condemning himself. He's not deprecating. He's not slamming himself. He is forgetting himself. And there's something profound and beautiful there. And what is he saying? He's saying, look, I'm not worthy of all the attention that people have given me. I'm not even worthy of the attention that I've given myself. Reflecting, reviewing, you know how it is. We we look at our lives. We turn inward so often, critiquing and reminding and reviewing. And if you do that, by the way, you're not getting any closer to the truth. You're not getting any closer to humility if you do that. You need to turn your eyes towards Christ. What does Christ think? Who is Christ? That's where my identity resides. But we resist it. Let's be honest. We we resist that in our selfish pride and we resist it in our self-pity, which is a reverse form of pride, by the way. We resist it. The last church that I served was about this size, a little larger. They had a lot of weddings at that church, and uh, I I did a lot of those weddings. In fact, I could be a wedding coordinator. I, I don't think that's probably something to be proud of, but nevertheless, I remember many times we would set up on a Friday night, and we'd be, you know, almost exactly like this, and the wedding coordinator who worked at the church, she would come forward, and I knew all the lines. I could pretty much say all of them right off the hand, and, and everybody would be set up, and we would remind everybody in the wedding party what's to be expected the next day. She would say a few things, uh, you know, a few words. By the way, tomorrow, be here at such and such a time. Don't be late for the photos. And if there was kind of a, you know, a frat... Boy mentality amongst some of the groomsmen. She'd say, "No drinking before the the ceremony, you know." And, and by the way, ladies and men, all of you, just want you to be mindful that if you get on this platform and, and you start to lock your knees, you're going to get lightheaded. And if you do feel lightheaded, you need to go and sit down. Don't just collapse on this stage up here. And then I would t- I would remind people too. They would always have this awkwardness if you were in the the bridal party. You'd say, you know, like where do you look? You know, during the ceremony. I would always say, just remember. Remember, wedding party, if you wonder where your eyes ought to be, it's eyes on bride. Eyes on bride. In other words, it's, it's not about you, right? That's what she was trying to say and we were trying to be mindful of. It's not about you. Well, one of these weddings I did, they had a, uh, a big reception and they rented out an entire Italian restaurant, and uh, we made our way over to the party, my wife, Krista, and I, and we got there a few minutes late, I guess, and the, there was already, the band was already playing. They had a, an MC and a DJ all, uh, set up, and uh, and, and th- then they start scurrying when they see me come in the door. I was ahead of the wedding party, but they said, oh, come over here, pastor. You're supposed to MC this. Do what? I thought my job was over. I'm just looking forward to some, you know, some pasta, and well, Here they are. The wedding party's about to come in. The the limo is just pulled up. Here's the list, and you've got to introduce everybody. Do what? I look over this list of names, and there were several internationals. Folks, I I, I botched this whole list. I don't know that I pronounced anyone's name. I might even have married some cousins or something, trying to introduce so-and-so, escorted by so-and-so. It was It was horrible. It was so embarrassing. And of course, at the end, I I get this one right. Oh, and now it's my pleasure to introduce again to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs., and everyone applauds, and, well, they just forget about all the rest. But imagine, if you will, if I had walked away from that scenario and I had spent the rest of the evening disgruntled and upset because who put me up to this? Why do they spring this on me, make me look stupid? I don't want to look stupid. Or, or imagine, if you would, maybe one of the bridesmaids, well, the rest of the evening during the reception while everyone else is having a grand old time, she's over in the corner weeping and sulking because I did mispronounce her name and embarrassed her. Well, you might listen to that and say, you yeah, know, that's just ridiculous. You know, people don't do that. And that's not what happened that evening, but is it really ridiculous to think? Just think of our own experience. Sometime. Our, our, our self-pity, our preoccupation with self, our lame excuses, our, our, our looking inward concerning our own image and reputation. What's it like? What's it like for you? How do you respond when you find out that so-and-so has been invited to a party and you weren't? How do you respond when other people are thanked and, and others are acknowledged for something and you don't get that acknowledgement? And maybe you rightly deserved it but nevertheless, it passes you by. Maybe you hear about a decision. Maybe you hear about a failure by someone else or or an award that someone else got, and your immediate thought is, how does this improve me? Or how does this detract from me? There are times when we cry, that's not fair, and we cry, that's not right, but oftentimes we're just crying, me, me, me me when John's asked the question who are you he quickly points to the more important question not who am I but who is he because that was the theme of John's life later you can read in John 3 3 he says I must decrease and he Jesus must increase increase He doesn't say, behold, I. John doesn't say, he doesn't even say, behold, I. I, I, I'm so unworthy. He's saying, behold, the lamb, the lamb of God. Look to him, Messiah. So that's our second heading here, picking up in verse 29. Jesus' identity, Jesus' purpose. He says, behold, we don't use that language uh, nowadays. We say, look, and this, this look to the Lamb of God, that, that Lamb of God, that notion would have brought forth all sorts of images for them. If you know the Old Testament, it should for you as well, because if you go back to Genesis chapter 22, you read there of Abraham and his son, his longed for son, Isaac. They're making their way on a journey, and Isaac, of course, turns to his father and says, I see the wood, I I, I see the fire, the knife. But father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says what? The Lord will provide. And he does in the form of a lamb. And, and then later, hundreds of years later, we find out that in the life of Israel, as they're in the bondage of slavery in Egypt, when God wants to deliver them, one of the last plagues is what? The angel of death descends upon the firstborn over all of Egypt. But those who have the blood of what? The lamb across their doorpost are passed over. A substitute, right? We read about that later in Isaiah 53 when we read of Messiah to come, that he would be one who is pierced, afflicted, yet Isaiah 53 says this, he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb, a lamb he was led to the slaughter. Clearly, Jesus, the atonement, the ransom, the payment for sin. The payment for our sins. And notice John here does not say, pointing to the Lamb, hey look, there is a Lamb of God. He says, no, look, the Lamb of God It takes away our sin. Can you imagine that? Just that, that imagery that away it goes. The, the burden of our own guilt and shame which we cannot take away. We cannot remove. He does. The Lamb takes it away. The Lamb is not just... You know, a throwaway animal. No, Revelation 5, we read it earlier. Revelation 5 testifies, all of us read it in unison, the Lamb of God who is worthy. Worthy of our allegiance, of our lives that we might bow down. And if you want to be humble, and by the way, humility, it is a virtuous thing, but of all the virtues, humility is very shy. As soon as you begin to talk about it, it leaves the room. Think about that. If you want to be humble, if you want to think of yourself less, that, that, that blessed freedom of self-forgetfulness, which is, which is a joyous freedom, I want to commend to you a couple of things. One of them actually would be a book, and that is a book by Tim Keller, um, who talks about that shy virtue of humility. In his, it's a tiny little booklet. You can read it in one sitting. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Buy multiple copies. It is a great resource. That's where you can find that C.S. Lewis quote as well. But two things I want, because we trip all over ourselves as we look inward, but let me encourage you in just two steps here this morning, and the first would be quite simply repentance, because everything in verses 31 through 34 is pointing towards this baptism of repentance, which was a preparation to receive Messiah. Now, there were two baptisms, of course, in view here. I mean, for us, we have two in view, and one has to do as with our baptism the will of humans turning but the other has to do with the baptism of the holy spirit which the apostle paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says a baptism into one body and the cleansing of our sin because the holy spirit comes and showers down that cleansing that we need being filled also with holy spirit so repentance lord help me <laughs> deliver me, I wanna turn from this and, and be so bold as to ask other people, help me. I remember one time I was right near the end of grad school and I, I, I missed an assignment I didn't know about and I was so terrified and sad and just, just down and I, I wasn't married at the time and I wanted some sympathy so I naturally called a woman and I, I called my mom and I said, mom, you know this is what's happened, can you believe this? This is so wrong, it's so unjust, I might not even be able to graduate, I have to go an entirely new semester and da, 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 da. Well, son, I was praying this morning for your humility. Ouch! Mom! So, if you pray for humility, the Lord might, he very well may lead you into repentance. The second thing I would say is focus focus on who Christ is, on what he has done, and then understand how he sees you. As much as I am prideful of being a wedding coordinator, I, I have no pride when it comes to the game of golf. I am horrible at golf. Uh, I can make my way out to a golf course and uh, I know what to wear and I know all of the etiquette and I know what you're supposed to do with a divot and I even have the little tool that, that you, you know all the form and all this other stuff. I am so horrible at this game. It is so aggravating. And you're probably like me at times. You don't like playing games that you can't win at. And I get out to the golf course. My wife and I, when we were first married, she had never played golf. Never, ever picked up a golf club. And she went out with my parents and she played better than I did. And it was so aggravating. And I remember one, even last week, we were in my hometown of Asheville and I drove by uh, the golf course where I I learned to play. And... uh, And, you know, this imagery just comes back. I remember at the tee box, you know, it's right below the clubhouse and all the pressure's there. Everybody's lined up in their golf carts, ready to go. And all of your group's there. And I always wanted to go last. And it was so painful because it's like, hurry up and hurry up and hurry up. And the pressure's on and then you duff one. And it it rolls almost backwards. and, And you're just so... You know, and then there's this, this elderly man I remember one day there was an elderly man there and, and I of course had already duffed one and the mulligans and, and this, this elderly man who was the starter he came up to me and he said here let me help you out and he, he reached over and he said give me your ball and he pulls out of his back pocket a permanent marker and he, he, he marks a dot on the ball puts it back in his pocket and then he sets down the, the ball and he, he takes the ball and he puts it on the tee and he says can you see the black dot and I said yeah he said can, can you see it now he kept turning it can you see it now can you see the black dot now yes yes i can see the black dot can you see it now barely okay good now hit the ball what was the point of all this i wasn't keeping my head down (laughs) i wasn't looking at the ball and then i hit it didn't go that far but at least it went straight and at least i made contact and point is, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. It's about the Lamb. And that's not terrifying. It's liberating to know that He knows me through and through and He loves me. He's forgiven me. And I don't care about what people think and say. I care about what He does. Robert Murray McShane, who was a 19th century Scottish minister, Writes of this, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He's quoting Jeremiah 17 there. And this is what he goes on to say Learn much of the Lord Jesus, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much, he goes on to write, in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Feel His all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in His almighty arms. I know that Christ is my Lamb. He is your Lamb. Our identity is in Christ. He is our reference point. The Lamb of God. Two years ago, I... Woke up and uh, almost uh, to the month, I, I woke up and received word, a message that uh, my dear friend uh, and mentor, an older pastor, Terry Traylor, had died just totally unexpectedly. Collapse of a heart attack, working out in the gym. And I, I was so dumbfounded. I remember just, just, I was there in my bed, just 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 weeping and weeping at the thought that Terry was gone. I had spent, just a few months earlier, I had spent an entire two weeks with he and his wife. Such a sweet time to know that he was dead. His favorite hymn, Terry, his favorite hymn was The Sands of Time Are Sinking, and we're going to sing it here in just a moment. The sands of time are sinking. There are different renditions as far as the music is concerned, but the verses of Samuel Rutherford there are so sweet and so rich and so strong for us to consider. And I can still see it on his face because Terry would talk a great deal about glory, about the new heavens and the new earth, and that's exactly what the song is pointing us to because one of the verses, this is the one, I will not gaze at glory, This is when we enter into his presence. He says, I will not gaze at glory, Rutherford writes, but on my king of grace, not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's lamb. I can still see Terry looking at me with such fervor, with with such emphasis, he would say, Troy, Troy, The Lamb is all the glory. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Which is to say, it's not about the sweetness or the reward or the deliverance. It's not about me or my benefits or my achievements, but Jesus. Because the glory shines so bright. In fact, the new heavens and the new earth which comes down and descends the new Jerusalem. There is no need of sun because the glory of the radiance of the brilliance of Jesus is so bright. Can you see it? Do you get even just a glimpse of it right now? Well, it's only by faith that we'll see it and take our eyes off ourselves. But let's do that right now. Will you join me in prayer? Father, as... As I prayed even as we opened your word, we confess that we have sins. Forgive us, Lord, that sin and pride and arrogance can deceive us, and we don't perceive you or our purpose or our identity correctly. And I would ask God that you would be pleased, even mercifully, to bless uh, this wonderful congregation here at South Shore Baptist. May they not be detoured. Lord, with any self-preoccupation this year ahead, would you flourish them, Lord, as they look to you, these brothers and sisters, would you flourish their ministry and their leadership, their witness in the community as they look to you? Lord, bless us all, would you please, with the freedom of self-forgetfulness, and we pray that you would do that for our joy and for your sake, for your name, for your fame this new year ahead. We pray all this through Christ. Amen.